Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 1st of July, 2023. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. And can you tell us, mate, what's up in the sky for the month of July? That's a poem. <laughs> You're a poet and you don't even know it. Okay, look, July is having a little bit more action than June. Amongst other things, the planetary action is mostly returning to the evening skies. We've got Venus and Mars being our companions like they were last month. And Venus is at its best brilliance. Mercury returns to the evening twilight later in the month. And Saturn has now entered the late evening skies. Cool. I'll start again with the moon, as I always do. So July the 3rd is the full moon. From July the 10th to the uh, 26th is a good time for looking at faint fuzzies. So July the 10th is the last quarter moon. Uh, so the evenings will be uh, dark skies. July 17 is the new moon when all the skies are dark. And July 26, we have the crescent moon becoming the first quarter moon. So the skies will still be quite good for faint fuzzy viewing, but it will get progressively lighter and lighter. Yep. Now, the moon is at perigee, but it's closest to the Earth, to the Earth on July the 5th, which is not too far away from the full moon. Although you could class this as a inverted commas, uh, supermoon, the perigee Sisgy moon. I'm not going to bother. Next month, we'll have a better perigee Sisgy moon. The moon's also at apogee on July the 20th. But, of course, we've just had the, the solstice, where the days are going to get uh, progressively uh, longer. But Earth is at aphelion when it's uh, furthest from the sun on the 11th of July. So, we won't get a lot of relief from the cold anytime soon. So let's go back to the evening sky. Remember I said Mercury is returning around about mid-month. So from about the 15th on, 
Mercury, you can see in at, at nautical twilight, that's an hour after sunset. On the 19th, Mercury is near the thin crescent moon, which will look quite nice. And remember, above Mercury, you've got Venus and Mars. Mars is quite dim now, so you have to wait for a bit to see it properly. But nonetheless, all three together should be quite nice. And on the 27th and 28th, Mercury passes below Venus. So Mercury won't be fantastically bright, but it'll be very obvious. And if you watch in, in the, uh, the days coming up to this, you'll see Mercury and Venus getting closer and closer. Cool. And then Mercury passes from Venus towards the bright star Regulus. And from the 28th to the 29th, Mercury is close to Regulus. Yep. But of course, that means that if Mercury is close to Regulus and close to Venus, Venus has to be close to Regulus too. And I'll talk about that a bit in a minute. So Venus has been climbing higher in the sky. Now it's beginning to sink towards the horizon. But for most of this month, it remains visible after astronomical twilight uh, until late in the month and then easily visible in nautical twilight. Yep. Venus is also increasing in brilliance and it reaches its greatest brilliance on the 8th. Although when it starts fading, it's going to fade from minus 4.5 to minus 4.2. And unless you've got really good eyesight, you're never going to be able to tell the difference. Ironically, at its greatest brilliance, Venus is only a quarter illuminated. So you have this sweet spot between Venus getting close to us and getting bigger and the amount of Venus's disk that's illuminated. And uh, if you've been watching Venus through a telescope, you've seen it go from virtually a full moon shape to a gibbous moon to a half moon shape and now it's, it's looking a bit like a, a, an early crescent moon and by the 8th it'll start it'll be a, a quarter illuminated moon or a, a little bit more crescent than a first quarter moon and become more and more obviously a crescent in fact by the end of the month you should be able to see it as a crescent in good binoculars well, or if your if your binoculars are like mine where they're good but not quite that good what you'll see is a number of little crescents all sort of stacked up on on top of each other as you desperately try and focus it but if you've got a halfway decent telescope it's going to be a very very clear crescent and you'll be able this month you'll be able to in a telescope really see the change in size as venus comes closer and closer to us well again in terms of coming closer just talked about Mercury coming close to Venus, but Venus is also becoming closer to Mars through June, which you will have noticed, uh, if unlike me, you've actually had clear skies. So on July, Venus is at its closest to Mars. It's only going to be about uh, three and a half degrees away, which is basically a little bit uh, over three finger widths away. Yep. And then it remains within four finger widths, four degrees, for the rest of July before uh, Venus starts moving away from Mars. Yep. But all of this makes for some uh, notable uh, encounters. So on the 15th, Venus, Regulus and Mars make an attractive lineup with Venus and Mars almost equally distant from Regulus. And then Venus is a hand span from Regulus or from the 8th to the 26th and its closest approach is on the 18th when it's 3.5 degrees away. And again, remember, it, it's going to encounter Mercury later on. So on the 
27th and 28th, Mercury is below Venus as it gets comes close to uh, Regulus. And on the 7th to 21st, there's going to be a very nice lineup of Venus, Regulus, Mars, and the Crescent Moon. And Mercury is going to be below that. So they're not particularly close, but just the view of Venus and Mars and Regulus uh, and the Crescent Moon will look very nice. And Mercury below is an, an obvious. Nice. I'm looking forward to this one. So, of course, it's going to be raining. But anyway, so Mars is a dim ember, a fraction of the brightness of what it used to be, but it's still bright enough to be obvious, and it's brighter than uh, some of the local stars. So, again, I'll just remind you that on the first, Venus and Mars are its closest, and then remains close to Venus for most of the first week. At, while Mars is heading towards the bright star Regulus in Leo. So from the 15th, Venus, Regulus and Mars make an attractive lineup with Mars almost equidistant from Regulus. But on the 9th to the 12th, it's around about one degree from Regulus. And on the 11th, they'll look really, really close together. So again, I'll remind you that on the 21st, there's going to be that lineup of Venus, Regulus, Mars and the Crescent Moon with Mercury below. And Mars is only three degrees from the moon at this time. So it's going it to be very obvious which bright object is, uh, is going to be Mars. Through a telescope, Mars is going to be very disappointing. Its tiny disk will be almost featureless in anything other than very grunty telescopes. Yep. So let's move to the morning sky. Now, Saturn's still in the morning sky. And I'll talk, but I'll talk about it that in the evening sky in a second but it's heading low in the in the west. The outstanding object in the morning sky is, of course, Jupiter. It's now high enough for telescopic observation, and then on the 12th, Jupiter will be three degrees from the waning crescent moon. Hmm. That will look very nice. And, you should, and you'll be able to get both of the moon and Jupiter into one binocular field. Yep. Now, uh, talk about Saturn being low in the uh, morning sky, but it's climbing higher in the evening sky, and it's now high enough to view comfortably. It remains better in the early morning, so your best viewing in terms of telescopic is more around about 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning. But even so, from about 11 o'clock on is a good time to get it in the telescopes. And on the 7th, Saturn is near to the waning moon in the late evening sky, so... At the moment, Saturn's fairly obvious. It's the only relatively bright object above the eastern horizon. And it's almost equidistant between two bright stars that are higher in the sky, Altair and Omohau. Yep. But again, these are these form the base of a triangle with Saturn at the apex, just above the horizon. So again, it's very easy to find. But if you're still having troubles on the 7th, it's uh, quite close to the waning moon uh, in the late evening sky. So it's fairly obvious it's the brightest object next to the uh, the waning moon. Cool. So again, uh, you've got Scorpio is now quite high in the early evening and very high in the late evening. So it, uh, I've talked about looking for the clusters in Scorpio uh, previously. And it's uh, quite, my comments remain the same. Again, if you 
follow the curl of of Scorpio, uh, you'll see the bright globular cluster M4 close to Antares. Then as you head down towards where the sting of the tail begins to turn around, you'll see uh, a group of stars that we call the False Comet. And then below the end of the sting is Ptolemy's, Ptolemy's cluster and the butterfly cluster. And then uh, below that, we're beginning to get the centre of the galaxy coming into view. And I'll talk about that more in our next podcast. But uh, if you, uh, where the centre of the galaxy is much higher and the clusters are much easier to see. But if you follow the sting down to the Ptolemy's and butterfly cluster, heading down, you'll see uh, more interesting things. And the asterism of the teapot of Sagittarius is now becoming clear. Again, it's uh, also a not bad time to look for the dark constellation of the emu. So the Southern Cross is now at approximately the three o'clock position. Uh, if you imagine the southern sky as a clock face with uh, 12 o'clock at the top and three o'clock off to the off to its usual position uh, to the right, the Southern Cross is roughly at the three o'clock position. It's still in a good position to see lots of interesting things. And you can use the pointers and the Southern Cross to find your way to Omega Centauri, which is a magnificent globular cluster. So if you take the pointers and Alpha Crucis, if you make that the base of a triangle and extend that out by about three or four hand spans, sweeping with binoculars, you'll see this wonderful fuzzy blob, which is the uh, Omega Centauri, one of the finest uh, globular clusters. It's visible earlier on when it's higher, but if, you're, you, if you don't want to ruin your neck, Ten o'clock is a good time because the, the, the big problem with the, with these things being really high in the sky where it's clear and dark and wonderful is that you have to sort of lie on your back or be staring up at an uncomfortable angle. So at uh, at ten o'clock, the uh, Omega Centauri will be in a quite nice position to view. And if you sweep down from the Southern Cross towards you'll see uh, uh, below the Southern Cross a, a, a group of stars that look like a kite, and the top of top star of that kite uh, will have a smattering of little stars around it. That's the uh, Southern Pleiades, uh, otherwise known as Theta Carina. And that's, while not as resplendent as the uh, Pleiades itself, is still a beautiful little thing to look at. Very nice. Uh, yeah, now we've got a couple of other things coming up. For example, remember I spoke last month about Comet C slash 2021 T411. Uh, it's been steadily brightening in the morning skies and it's bright enough to be uh, visible in good binoculars uh, early in the month. And it's brightest as it passes through the constellations of Bruce, the Crane, and Parvonis the Peacock around about big month. Yep. It's brightest about magnitude 7.9, which isn't particularly bright, but again, it, you should be able to pick it up as a fuzzy dot in binoculars as it passes close to Peacock, the brightest star in Parvo. And that it does that between the 19th to the 21st. Now, uh, I'll uh, be putting up spotter charts on Astroblog uh, after this, uh, rather than try and tediously explain um, where, uh, where Peacock is 
uh, and uh, at what point you can see it past Peacock. We also have another a nice meteor shower, the Southern Delta Aquarians. Uh, they run from the 12th of July to the 23rd of August, and they peak on Sunday, July the 30th. So you've got plenty of time to work up to that. Now, again, reminder that the uh, you'll see things like you'll, the Delta Aquarians will have 25 meteors per hour. So that's the zenith hourly rate, which would be how many uh, meteors we would see if the if the origin of the meteors was directly overhead of the zenith, and they're, they're never that high, so you'll always see less. Yep. So this shower is fairly faint, and you'll probably see a rate of about oh, the meteor every four to five minutes. The, the last quarter moon is setting when the shower is peaking, and the shower is also at its highest point above the horizon while the moon is still high. But if you look from around about 2 a.m. to 3 a.m., the moon should be sufficiently low for you to see a fair a huge number of uh, meteors. Now, the radiant is going to be fairly easy to pick because it's about a hand span below Saturn in the, uh, the northeastern to uh, northwestern sky. So... Of course, yeah, that means you've had to check out the position of Saturn uh, back on the 7th and keeping an eye on it. But uh, again, as Saturn's the, the brightest object in that area of the sky, look for that and look a bit below that and keep moving your eyes about so that uh, you can have a chance of check, uh, catching every, any, any meteors. Again, there's not going to be too many. There's, uh, they're not really fantastically bright meteors. But if you're... If you, have a chance and you're up in case you're looking for Comet uh, Lemon. It's a good chance. Just have a have a look at the meteors. So step out yeah. and look up, Ian. Yeah, indeed. Do you have a tangent for us for July, Ian? I do indeed. Now, circling back to the fact we've just had the solstice and, the, uh, and we've got Aphelion happening for Earth, as the days are getting longer here in the Southern Hemisphere, we'll also notice that the sun is progressively moving where it's setting uh, back towards the uh, east and west. And for those of us who are uh, in the cities, constructed a north-south-east-west grid, uh, and those of us who commute by car on this uh, east-west grid will find themselves increasingly driving into the rising or setting sun. Uh, at these times, we may idly speculate, as we do, how can astronomy get us out of a traffic line? Yep. Now, it's easy to forget in these days of digital watches that astronomy is intimately connected to time telling. Now, just down the road from me is the Semaphore Time Ball Tower. In time past, when uh, ships from, uh, from overseas and the mail ships anchored uh, in uh, Semaphore at the Semaphore Jetty, accurately determining longitude required accurate clock timing. Latitude's relatively easy to determine from heights of stars. You know where you are uh, up and down because of how high the stars are, but knowing exactly where you are in, in a longitude requires you to have an accurate clock. Now, ships' clocks in pre-digital days drifted over time, and even the best clocks, these clocks were not shabby. Uh, the clocks drifted slightly. 
So they synchronised their clock uh, with the fall of a ball on the Time Ball Tower, which was dropped at precisely 1pm on a signal from the observatory uh, located on uh, in Adelaide, on North Terrace, where the current Adelaide High School is. Now, how did they tell the time? Uh, you might think that they'd go for the position where the sun was at the zenith, uh, at uh, determining local moon. But in fact, they used times determined from transit of stars. Uh, now, the details of how they did it in Adelaide are not available in, into any of the, the documents I've looked at so far, but I'll see if I can track something, something down. But if we look at the UK in Greenwich, this was done by comparing the observed times of transit stars with the theoretical times uh, based on previous calculations. So in 1851, for example, there were some 67 clock stars kept under observation at Greenwich for this purpose. And the transit uh, clock was always regulated to sidereal time. Indeed, it's from this, uh, this clock that the Greenwich Mean Time, uh, we now call uh, universal time, was utterly ultimately determined. So uh, these days, of course, we use lasers bounced off satellites to determine the minute variations of Earth's spin and feed this into the steady ticks of atomic clocks to give us ultra-precise time. But in those days, you uh, you sat on your deck watching for the time ball tower uh, ball to fall, and then you adjusted your uh, ship's clock to exactly one o'clock based on the fall of that. Fantastic. But it's not only determining exactly what the time was, but they also uh, determined the time of sunrise and su sunset from astronomical uh, observations to great uh, precision. Now, how does it get you out of a traffic fine, you may say? In 1935, uh, a carter got out of a ticket for driving a cart without light before sunrise. Now, the carter was dinged at 6.40am, but when the magistrate asked the police officer who dinged him what time sunrise was, they replied they didn't know. So the charges were dismissed. In fact, sunrise was at around 7.30am July in 1935, and the defendant was in fact guilty. This goes to show that all police officers should have a working knowledge of sunrise and sunset. But let's circle back to the light of the setting sun uh, for those of us who are stuck in traffic, staring directly into the setting sun as we're trying to get home. Yep. Now, of course, you're, uh, as you're dazzled by the sun, this can have important implications for culpability in traffic accidents. Now, uh, uh, astrophysicist Brad Tucker, in an article in The Conversation, explains how astronomers can give evidence in court about the height and direction of sun at a given time in a traffic accident. Now, you've probably uh, uh, all seen court dramas and you've seen how uh, forensic or medical scientists give evidence, but the idea of an astronomer giving evidence is less familiar to us. But it, it indeed does happen. When someone claims the sun was in their eyes, causing a glare, and then they get into a car accident, uh, how do you tell if you're telling, determine if you're telling the truth? So you need an expert to say where the sun was, what the position was, and how it aligned with the street and the direction of travel. So now obviously, if you are on an east-west street and the sun's directly in your eyes, this can hinder someone's vision leading to the possibility of an accident and may, uh, may, may reduce your culpability in the case you do rear-ended someone because you can't see that they put their brake lights on. Yep. So 
And Brad, then goes on to give further examples of how an astronomer's understanding of the position of the sun and the moon can help in cause, uh, court cases. Now, I highly recommend you head over to the conversation and read it. So search for Brad Tucker and the conversation and you pull up the article, and it's a really fascinating read. Because, you know, in these days, we have fantastically detailed images of planets, nebulas, black holes, but we forget that in an area, area of astronomy that was once preeminent, time-telling is still important. And what we think of now as the one day knowing where the sun, moon, and rise uh, set times, it still has immense importance, especially if you flat back in and someone on your drive home from work. So I'd like you all to reflect on that the next time the sun gets in your eyes on the way home. Very good. We did a great interview with Dr. Tucker when we went and visited Mount Stromlo. He's a, a very generous person. Yeah, and I, his writing is, is beautiful too. So again, I highly re recommend that article. You head to the conversation uh, and if you search on Brad's name or search uh, the conversation, where was the sun, uh, you should put that article up uh, and I can't, uh, I can recommend it highly. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. I'll remind listeners that if you just put Astroblog into your favourite search engine, you'll be able to see... Ian's online presence in his Astro blog, also on Southern Skywatch. If you want to find out exactly what's happened in text version, check out Southern Skywatch as well as Astro blog. Thank you, Ian, and good night. Thank you very much, Brendan, and good night to you too. And may you have clear skies when you need them to see interesting things in the sky. And I'll just remind people that I will be putting uh, charts up for some of these things. So uh, describing them is is, is uh, very nice, but it's nice to also see a, see a chart that you can hold up and look into the sky and say, aha, I'm looking in the right direction. Excellent. It's a great month, July. Step out it and is. look up. Indeed. I heartily recommend that. Good night, mate. Good night. See you later. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. And in two weeks' time, we're really pleased to bring you an in-depth interview with Greg Sleep. Greg is the Software and Systems Team Leader at the Curtin Institute of Radio Astronomy, which manages the Murchison Widefield Array Project, a low-frequency radio telescope array of thousands of spider antennas in remote Western Australia, which in turn is a precursor to the Square Kilometre Array Telescope, the world's largest radio telescope. And the challenge of modern radio astronomy is to extract new knowledge from petabytes of data that's gathered from these huge antenna arrays. And Greg's job is to enable immense data streams and caches to be gathered, correlated, in some cases stored, and transported to research astrophysicists all over the world. So in two weeks, we've got some incredible data wizardry with Greg Sleep. Tune in. Till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.